Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Jolly Jane Toppin. But first, your true crime headlines. A West Texas man who went on a shooting spree in the towns of Midland and Odessa had been fired from his job just hours before his rampage began, the culmination of what is now being described as a long downward spiral. 36-year-old Seth Ader reported to work on that Saturday morning in what FBI Special Agent Christopher Combs would later describe as a very distressed mental state. He was fired, and both he and his employer called 911. Police responded to Ader's workplace, but by the time they arrived, he had already left. Ader then called the FBI's national tip line, something he had done hundreds of times before, according to Agent Combs. Combs described the call as rambling and disjointed, but not threatening. About 15 minutes after placing the call to the FBI, Ader was pulled over by police for failing to signal a lane change. Ader pointed an AR-15-style weapon out of the rear window of his car and opened fire, injuring one of the officers. He then sped away, firing indiscriminately as he drove. Over the course of the ensuing 15-mile car chase, Ader killed seven people and injured 23 others before being killed by police in a shootout behind a crowded movie theater in Odessa. Neighbors of the shooter described him as antisocial and unfriendly. He lived about 20 miles from downtown Odessa in a dirt-floored aluminum shack without electricity, running water, or furniture. Ader had previously failed a firearms background check and was prevented from buying a gun. Authorities have not yet determined how he was able to obtain the assault-style rifle used in the shooting. A homeless man who was left in a coma after an unprovoked attack in a Modesto park last month has died. The victim, 63-year-old Jace Decker, was targeted after his assailants mistook him for a sex offender. Decker was known to frequent Garrison Park, where the attack took place. On the night of August 10th, Decker was in the park when he was confronted by two men, Matthew Argello and Ruben Rosales, both known gang members. Believing that Decker was a sex offender, the men savagely beat him until he was unconscious. Decker slipped into a coma, from which he died last week. According to Modesto police, Decker was not a sex offender. Argello was taken into custody one week after the attack, but Rosales remains at large. The United States Marshals Service is offering a reward of $10,000 each for a pair of fugitives who escaped from guards as they were being extradited from New York to Arizona to face first-degree murder charges. The husband and wife fugitives, 56-year-old Blaine and 59-year-old Susan Barksdale, were on their way back to Arizona to stand trial for the murder of 72-year-old Frank Bly, who has not been seen since his Tucson home was burglarized and set on fire in April. Authorities believe that the Barksdales, along with Blaine's 31-year-old nephew, Blake Mallard, committed the burglary and the arson. Bly was not in the house at the time, but authorities later concluded that he had been murdered, though his body has not been found. Mallard is in custody in Arizona facing arson and second-degree burglary charges. 
the Barksdales were being transported by a private security firm at the time of their escape. They were somehow able to overpower their guards and take control of the van in Blanding, Utah. They drove the van to northern Arizona, where they abandoned it with the guards tied up in the back. It took the guards several hours to free themselves, giving the Barksdales a head start of six or seven hours, according to U.S. Marshals. During the burglary of Bly's house, nearly 100 weapons were stolen. Authorities believe that the Barksdales may have access to that cache of weapons and state that the fugitives should be considered armed and dangerous. They were last seen driving a red Sienna pickup truck with Arizona plates and damage to the front passenger side and rear bumper. The FBI, U.S. Marshals, and Apache County Sheriff's Office are assisting in the investigation. Authorities believe that they may be traveling through Arizona. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Jolly Jane Toppin. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Jolly Jane Toppin. In 1857, Honora Kelly was born in Boston, Massachusetts. The youngest of four sisters, Honora's parents, Bridget and Peter Kelly, were Irish immigrants. Honora's mother, Bridget, died from tuberculosis when Honora was just an infant. Her father, Peter Kelly, was well known as an eccentric, abusive alcoholic and was nicknamed by those who knew him as Kelly the Crack, as in Crackpot. In 1863, just a few years after his wife's death, Peter Kelly took his two youngest daughters, eight-year-old Delia Josephine and six-year-old Honora, and dumped them in the Boston Female Asylum, an orphanage for needy children. Documents from the asylum only note that the Kelly sisters were rescued from a very miserable home. Just a few years later, their father, now working as a tailor, was institutionalized after attempting to sew his own eyelids shut. Delia later became a sex worker and an alcoholic herself, ultimately losing her life to the bottle. Their older sister, Nellie, who had been spared the orphanage, was later committed to an asylum. But in November of 1864, less than two years after being placed in the orphanage, little Lenora Kelly was placed as an indentured servant under Miss Anne C. Toppin and Abner Toppin in Lowell, Massachusetts. Immediately upon her arrival, Mr. and Mrs. Toppin changed the little girl's first name from Menora to Jane. The Toppins didn't want people to know that Honora came from an Irish background. Along with her new name, Jane was also given a new backstory by the Toppins. She was an Italian girl whose parents had died at sea. Although the family, who had a younger daughter of their own, Elizabeth, 
never formally adopted Jane, Jane later adopted their surname, becoming Jane Toppin. As a child, Jane excelled in school. She was described as brilliant and aggressive. Though very intelligent, Jane was also believed to be a compulsive liar. Jane told her classmates outrageous stories, including that her father had sailed around the world, that her sister had married an English nobleman, and that her brother had been personally decorated at Gettysburg by Abraham Lincoln himself. When Jane turned 18, she graduated from Lowell High School. The Toppins paid her $50, as per her indentured servant agreement, and Jane was free to go. But Jane decided to remain with the Toppins and stay on as their servant. When the matron of the house, Anne Toppin, died, leaving her daughter Elizabeth to take over the house, Jane acted as Elizabeth's servant, as she had done for Anne for so many years prior. Though Elizabeth was said to have treated Jane much more kindly than Anne had. But when Elizabeth married a church deacon, Ormel Brigham, and her new husband moved into the Toppin house, Jane, over some dispute, or perhaps jealousy, decided to move out of the house that she'd lived in for over two decades and head out on her own. In 1887, now in her early 30s, Jane became a student nurse at Cambridge Hospital. Her cheerful, friendly, and outgoing personality quickly earned her the nickname Jolly Jane among her fellow students. But over time, Jane's gossipy nature and compulsive lying quickly soured her friendships. One time, Jane made the wild claim to her fellow students that the Tsar of Russia had personally offered her a nursing job. Jane spread rumors and celebrated when students that she didn't like were dismissed. She blamed others for the things that she had done. The hospital administration were also troubled that Jane seemed to be obsessed with autopsies and told students that she didn't think there was any point in keeping old people alive. But Jane was more than just a cold girl with a morbid fascination with death. Jane began choosing her favorite patients, typically elderly and very sick, as they were the most helpless. Then she started experimenting on them like guinea pigs. Jane would alter their prescribed medications and test different levels of morphine and atropine to see how it would affect their nervous systems. To avoid detection, Jane altered their charts and medicated her patients to keep them drifting in and out of consciousness, unaware of what was happening and unable to cry out for help. Jane got a sexual thrill out of bringing her patients to the brink of death 
then back to life, then back to the brink again, over and over, crawling into bed with her patients and caressing them as they lay close to death. Although she was never found out, Jane was eventually dismissed from Cambridge Hospital without her certificate after two patients died under her care. But even without her certificate, Jane still managed to get a job at the Massachusetts General Hospital in 1889. Jane picked up right where she left off, but her thrills were short-lived as she was let go the following year for reckless administration of opiates. Despite allegations of overprescribing opiates, or maybe because of it, doctors from Massachusetts General Hospital began to recommend Jane as a private nurse to their wealthy clients. When Jane began her career as a private nurse, she soon started earning $25 a week, a huge sum at the time, as most women were earning just $5 a week. Both doctors and her own patients reported that Jane seemed to be a cheerful, outgoing, and skilled professional. There were a few reports of petty theft from her patients, but it didn't seem to have any effect on Jane's business. Jane soon discovered her calling card and began a spree of murder by poison. Bottles of mineral water laced with strychnine. Her first victim was her landlord, Israel Dunham. Then she poisoned his wife. Her reasoning was that they had become feeble and fussy and old and cranky. A few years later, Jane took it upon herself to invite her former foster sister, Elizabeth Toppen Brigham, to vacation with her in Buzzards Bay. Jane had been renting a summer holiday cottage from a woman named Maddie Davis. Elizabeth had been complaining to Jane that she felt depressed, so Jane suggested that a little vacation might help her. Jane planned a picnic for the two of them. Their meal was cold corned beef, some taffy, and a bottle of Jane's mineral water. Elizabeth died in Jane's arms later that night. I held her in my arms, Jane later recalled, and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. After murdering Elizabeth, Jane took the life of her fourth victim, 70-year-old Mary McNear. Mary's doctor had requested that Mary be seen by one of his best nurses, Jane Toppin. One month later, Jane heard that her close friend Myra Connors had fallen ill. Jane rushed to her friend's side to nurse her and gave her a bottle of mineral water. Myra worked as a dining hall matron at St. John's Theological School. Her position offered perks such as an apartment on campus and a housekeeper. 
It was everything Jane had always wanted. With Myra dead, Jane took over the position. But just six months later, Jane was fired for incompetence and financial irregularities. When Maddie Davis, the woman from whom Jane had rented the summer cottage, showed up at her door in Cambridge to collect Jane's rent, which had been only partially paid over several years, Jane didn't have the money. Jane owed Maddie $500, around $15,000 today. So Jane invited Maddie inside and gave her a bottle of mineral water. When Maddie became sick, Shortly after drinking the water, Jane did what any good nurse would do. She called a physician, as well as Maddie's daughter. The physician arrived, and Jane aided him, acting as though she was doing her best to figure out what was wrong with Maddie Davis. Jane continued to dose Maddie right under the physician's nose for a week straight. Finally, Jane ended Mattie's suffering using one massive dose of morphine. Shortly after Mattie's death, Mattie's daughters, Genevieve and Minnie, showed up to Jane's house. They told Jane that their father, Alden Davis, was grieving the loss of his wife and needed Jane's help. Over the next two months, Jane would murder the entire Davis family. 21 days after Mattie's death, the Davis's youngest daughter, Genevieve Gordon, would become the second victim. Prior to her death, Jane had told her older sister, Minnie, that she had seen Genevieve in the garden shed, staring at a box of rat poison. Jane told Minnie the family should keep an eye on Genevieve, since she didn't seem to be handling their mother's death well. When Genevieve died, less than a week later, Jane brought up the rat poison again. At this point, Alden Davis and his only remaining daughter, Minnie, had lost half of their family in just a three-week span. Jane later recalled that when she attended Genevieve's funeral, she was as jolly as could be and nobody suspected me in the least. The loss of Alden Davis's youngest daughter and wife seemed too much for him to bear. He died two weeks later. Minnie Gibbs and her 10-year-old son Jesse were the sole survivors of the Davis family. Jane attempted to convince Minnie to sign over the debt that Jane owed to the Davis family but Minnie refused. A few days later, Jane fixed Minnie a drink, a cocoa wine laced with strychnine. Jane heavily medicated Minnie until she could barely comprehend her surroundings. Then, Jane changed her tactics. She filled a syringe with the morphine cocktail which she had normally mixed into the mineral water. Then, she injected Minnie. As the poison traveled through Minnie's veins, 
Jane went upstairs and retrieved Minnie's son, Jesse, from his bed. She carried the half-awake child into his mother's room and, holding Jesse in her lap, watched as Minnie's body violently convulsed from the poison in her bloodstream and died. Minnie's father-in-law, Captain Paul Gibbs, couldn't believe that the entire Davis family, who had once been so healthy, had all died over the course of just two months. Captain Paul Gibbs got a judge to order Minnie's body exhumed and contacted Leonard Wood, a toxicologist, to investigate the body for signs of poison. The investigation revealed that Minnie had died of morphine and atropine poisoning. This led police to issue a detail on Jane Toppin. Meanwhile, Jane had a new plan. She moved back into her former foster sister Elizabeth's home with the idea of marrying Elizabeth's now widowed husband, Ormold Brigham. Three days after moving in, Jane killed Ormel's sister and housekeeper, 70-year-old Edna Barrister. Jane wanted to take over for Edna, becoming Ormel's housekeeper. Jane's plan was to win Ormel over and convince him to marry her. Her plan failed. Ormel made it abundantly clear that he wasn't interested in Jane as either a housekeeper or a partner. To convince him of her love, Jane began her old familiar cycle, poisoning Ormel, then nursing him back to health. When this didn't work either, Jane threatened to spread lies that Ormel had gotten her pregnant. Knowing it would destroy his reputation if others believed him to have impregnated his wife's adopted sister just months after her death, Ormel ordered Jane to leave the house and never return. Heartbroken, or hoping to win Ormel's sympathy and be invited back, Jane attempted to take her own life by overdosing on morphine. Having failed her suicide attempt, Jane ended up in the hospital. Jane had poisoned herself for sympathy before, but this time she barely survived. But while Jane was recovering in the hospital, she was in more danger than she realized. There was another patient who was not what he seemed. Matty's father-in-law, Captain Gibbs, pretended to fall ill in order to be admitted to the hospital and keep an eye on Jane. Following her release from the hospital, Jane temporarily stayed in Amherst with a friend named Sarah Nichols. Luckily for Sarah, it was a short stay for Jane. Police tracked her down to the Nichols' home, and in October of 1901, Jane Toppin was arrested for the murder of Minnie Gibbs. Following news of Jane's arrest, one of Jane's former patients, Amelia Finney, came forward with a story. In 1887, Jane had been her nurse 
after the doctor had performed an operation on her. Jane made her drink a bitter-tasting medicine, which caused Amelia to lose consciousness. As she lay in the bed, she thought she recalled Jane climbing into the bed with her, kissing her all over her face, curled up behind her. Then someone else entered the room, and Jane left. Amelia had written the entire incident off as a bizarre fever dream. It wasn't until 14 years later, hearing of Jane's arrest, that she came to the horrifying realization that the experience was not a dream. On June 23, 1902, Jane was tried in front of a jury at Barnstable County Courthouse. Jane had admitted to 31 separate murders. However, it is suspected that Jane may have killed closer to a hundred. When questioned on the stand about the number of people she murdered, Jane's response shocked the courtroom. I made it lively for the undertakers and the gravediggers. Jane Toppin claimed to the jury that her life's ambition was, quote, to have killed more people, helpless people, than any other man or woman who ever lived. She also claimed to have started her killing spree because she was jilted by a boyfriend when she was 16. The man gave her a promise ring, but then moved to Holyoke and fell in love with someone else. If I had been a married woman, Jane said, I probably would not have killed all those people. I would have had my husband, my children, and my home to take up my mind. After an eight-hour trial, the jury deliberated for only 27 minutes, and Jane Toppin was found not guilty by reason of insanity. She was committed to life in Taunton Insane Hospital. In an ironic twist of fate, Jane now found herself at the mercy of other nurses. She spent the rest of her life fearing that the nurses were poisoning her food and drinks. Eventually, she simply stopped eating altogether. On August 21, 1938, Jane Toppin died in the mental hospital at the age of 80. Years after Jane's death, one of her nurses who worked at Taunton revealed a haunting encounter she had with Jane. Jane had called the nurse over to her chair and motioned toward the door, then whispered in her ear, Get the morphine, dearie, and we'll go out into the ward. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.